Acts chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 21 and read through verse 42. Acts chapter 2, 21 through 42. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou hast made me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foals thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many words did he testify and exhort, saying, Be saved from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And this is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask now that you would indeed give us an extra measure of the Spirit this morning that we might understand and appreciate what thou hast done, how thou art sovereign God over all things and do all things for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. 
Um, I wanted to point out, you probably noticed if you were following me closely, that I read verse 40 different. In, in the King James, it says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. In the Greek, using the proper grammatical um, uh, language of the Greek, it says, be saved. You'll find the exact same thing in verse uh, 21. It's the exact same Greek word with the same text. Be saved. You shall be saved. Nobody saves themselves, and that would be contrary to doctrine. So, unfortunately, they translated it the way they did. It should say, be saved. And so I read it um, the way you will find it in the interlinear and the way you would find it if you looked up the, um, the Greek and the grammatical um, sense of it. So by way of introduction, I wanted us to appreciate a couple things. Basically, I want to talk about the sovereignty of God this morning and all of these things, because I suppose for many years, um, as I was sharing with one of the brethren this morning, I went to church quite regularly, but I was not a Christian, and I didn't understand the cross and how that sovereign God rules and reigns over everything, and everything went exactly according to plan. So I had this notion in my head as a kid that, you know, when Jesus was going to the cross, things were out of control. He was subject to mob mentality. And what a terrible thing that had happened. But by golly, it was prophesied, so it it happened because God said it was going to happen. But nevertheless, I was thinking that it was a bad thing that had happened. And so we wonder, I don't like to use the language Good Friday, but we wonder, well, was that really good? And what was that all about? And so in my heart, anyway, growing up, I had a lot of um, confusion and some apprehension about this as to how this story was going to play out. You know, I don't want to spoil it, but by golly, you know, he lives. We sang that this morning. So... I want us to appreciate that God is sovereign and everything happened exactly the way he wanted it to. But in spite of that, man is not absolved of his responsibility for what things that he did. So here we are. It's the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. So Acts chapter 2 opens up with that statement, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So it is the day of Pentecost. As you recall, after Jesus was resurrected, he was with the disciples for 40 days. And then that's where Acts chapter 1 picks up, is after the 40 days. And then he gives them a promise. Uh, they are assembled together in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. What was the promise of the Father? That they would receive the Holy Spirit, that they would receive the Comforter. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Ten days later, they're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. So Acts chapter 2 opens up with this thing taking place. We see in verse 2 of Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Ghost is poured out. In verse 2, it tells us that the sound filled the room. It sounded like a mighty wind. So it was quite a thing to behold if you were there, to hear this mighty rushing wind come about the room. And it says that the Holy Ghost alighted on the individuals and looked like cloven tongues as of fire. So they heard it. And they could see what was taking place in verse 4. It tells us that those people upon whom the cloven tongue of fire rested on were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then we see the manifestation of that. The fruit of that was that they spoke in other tongues or other languages is what it is in, um, in the Greek. The Spirit, it says, gave them utterance. What things did they talk about in different languages? Well, in, in verse 11, it tells us that they spake of the wonderful works of God. That's what things God gave them the unction to speak about was the wonderful works of God. And what are the wonderful works of God? Well, obviously, they were, they were sharing the gospel. They were speaking about what things Christ had done. So in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter's uh, speech begins. 
Now, I want us to appreciate um, Peter in particular because he's the one making the speech here that that formerly unlearned fisherman did not understand some of the most basic things that would take place with respect to Christ, even though he walked with him and learned from Christ's mouth himself for three and a half years. He did not understand that Christ would be manifest in the flesh. I mean, when Jesus asked him, who to say you that I am, he answered properly, but Jesus says to him, you know, you didn't figure this out on your own, but my Father in heaven did reveal it unto you. And that's true for every one of us here. Jesus could walk through the doors today, and unless you had the Holy Spirit in you, you would not know who he is. Unless, of course, he came as it's shown in Revelation. But nevertheless, if he walked in like he did in here, if he walked in in his person of Jesus Christ that he had been seen for the three and a half years, you would not know who he is if you did not have the Holy Ghost in you. So Peter did not understand what that meant to have God manifest in the flesh, walk among them. Emmanuel, as he is uh, named, did not understand that Jesus would have to go to Jerusalem and there he would be betrayed and he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then there he would be killed, and then he would be raised again on the third day. He did not understand it, and when Jesus explained it to him about as clear as possibly could be understood to him, what did he do? He rebuked Jesus and told them, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus, of course, said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but rather the things of men. Peter did not understand it, even though he'd been explained that it would happen. And what's interesting is, as Peter had witnessed many miracles of Christ, why he would doubt his word or not appreciate what Christ is sharing with him almost defies logic. I mean, if I'd seen somebody raise somebody from the dead and he was telling me what was going to happen tomorrow, I would be prone to believe him, but not so, Peter, and the Lord would teach me that not, that would be the same with me, too. Unless I have the Holy Ghost, I am not going to appreciate and understand who Christ is. So Jesus told them everything that was going to happen to him and when it was going to happen, and Peter still did not believe it. After the resurrection of Christ, Peter came to the empty tomb, and there he was like the other disciples. I don't understand this. Where is he? Well, Somebody must have taken his body. He doesn't know what to make of it. And so now here he is in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. He's now filled with the Holy Spirit. And with respect to Peter, this is the second time he's received the Holy Spirit. He's received a double measure of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, verse 22, the Lord breathed on the disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So now he's had a double dose of the Holy Spirit. And so by God's grace, all the pieces of the puzzle have come into place for him. And he starts to put things together here. So in verse 14, he says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. In other words, pay attention to what I'm going to explain to you because you have asked the question up in verse 12, What meaneth this? What meaneth this? What does this mean that the Holy Spirit has come upon all of these people? And what does it mean now that they're speaking in different languages that can be understood and speaking about the wonderful works of God? What does all of this mean here? And so um, what they um, want to appreciate is the sound they've heard, the fire they've seen, and the speech that they are now witness to. And so now our unlearned fisherman is now going to demonstrate himself as a theological giant. 
with an extraordinary memory. Suddenly, all of these things are going to come to his mind. He's going to remember things that he was taught in his youth and remember things that were said by the prophet. He's going to show himself approved unto God a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's going to pull from um, Joel, and he's going to pull from the Psalms, and he's going to put things together in such a way as to tell them what things are happening. He's going to properly apply them to the situation at hand, and he's going to explain the outpouring of the Holy Ghost as the evident fulfillment of prophecy and how it relates to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, what, among other things, I want us to appreciate is his appeal to the Scriptures, his appeal to the Scripture. We read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we see that in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, he talks about there are witnesses to affirm the fact that he has risen from the dead. One of them, he says, 500 people saw him at one time, at the same time, and witnessed him having been raised from the dead. Now, I want us to um, think for a moment that the world is full of religions. There are almost as many religions as there are people, and by that I mean that people create their own path to what they view to be heaven. They have their own heaven, and they have their own view of God. They look out the window and they say, how can a loving God do the things that he does? My God wouldn't do that, and they're making a logical disconnect because those things do happen, and there is a God sovereign over all things. So which one is allowing those things to happen? Which one is behind all of it? And the Bible tells you it's the God of the Bible. But they can't work that out. So the world is full of religions, and uh, they have um, many of them are codified in, in their own set of uh, religious writings and religious books. How many of those other books actually contain prophecies that are not simply nebulous and can be interpreted in a number of ways as fulfilling something that happened in history? Um, I don't know, but I think most of them are just nebulous, silly prophecies. Um, with respect to what is taking place here and what Peter is doing, how many of those other books prophesy that the primary object of their faith, the false god or depraved man around which their religion is built, how many of them prophesy that that individual will come at some point in the future? How many prophesy that that individual will die not just die, but die for them in particular, saving them from their sins. How many of those books contain prophecies that after having died, that he will raise from the dead and that he will ascend into glory and that he will rule and reign over all things? I would venture to say that there is not another book on the planet that has this kind of prophecy set forth, that a Savior will come. This tells when the Lord will come. Daniel sets forth the clock, tells us when the Savior is going to come. The Bible tells us that he will come. It tells us that he did come, and that's chronicled in the, um, the Gospels, that he did come. And then the epistles tell us what it means that he did come. And then the book of Revelation, of course, tells us that he will come again, and then what shall continue on into eternity. It's all laid out for us in the Bible. It's spoken of in multiple places, and um, 
in various books all throughout the Bible. It all repeats itself a number of times. It recapitulates the fall of man and the, um, his um, redemption you know, from sin. Um, God sets this truth before us. It's a wonderful book. It's written by God, and it is given to men. And I can't think of anything better for God to do, save that, of course, he died for us, but that he gives us a book to read about him and, to, and sets promises before us that when in times of trouble we can look to, we can open up, and we can read, and we can remind ourselves that, no, I know this world is a mess, and it is going to be destroyed, but Christ is pulling his people out of it. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, as Peter demonstrates for us here in his person and the things that he is doing, he is demonstrating that you cannot understand it and you cannot express it absent the Holy Spirit. As I said before, you know, he proved himself to be an unlearned, impetuous, you know, man who didn't understand things, even though Christ was standing next to him. And yet now that the Lord has risen and poured out the Holy Ghost, now Peter gets it and he understands these things. So that's certainly a lesson for us, too, that when we were younger, before the Lord opened our eyes, we were blind to these things. And so we should appreciate that other people are blind as well and that they don't get it, they don't understand it, and they will not get it, nor will they understand it, absent the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter demonstrates that for us here by the virtue of the things that he's, he's now doing and the things that he is now saying. So we pick it up in verse 21 of Acts chapter 2, and what um, Peter is doing here is he's, co- he's quoting from the book of Joel. Um, he says here, ye men of Israel, oh, and, it came to pa- and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's saying, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. So Peter doesn't yet understand necessarily everything he's saying, but there's something in here in particular that he's making reference to, and he's talking about the Holy Ghost being poured out. But he, it includes the language here that whosoever, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. So it's going to go past just the Jews. It's going to go to the Gentiles as well. And we know Peter's going to struggle with that a little bit, and the Lord's going to have to come to him and say, hey, I want you to go to Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion and who is a Gentile. So Peter's going to appreciate that later. But he's setting, the Lord is setting before us here uh, the fact that Jews and Gentiles alike are going to be um, part of God's plan of redemption. Over in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2, um, they make a statement that every nation under, head is, under heaven is represented in terms of the languages that are spoken there. Verse 6 says that they are hearing it in their own language, and if you do the math and get out your fingers and toes, it is 17 nations are mentioned there. So clearly it's intended that the gospel is going to go out into all the world, and the world is going to hear the gospel preached, the wonderful works of God. And so we should again appreciate that the gospel and salvation via the Holy Ghost being poured out is going to go out to the whole world, which will include people from, as it says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, every kindred and tongue and people and nation. As I mentioned before in Acts chapter 1, the Lord himself speaks about this. He talks about how the Holy Ghost, they will receive the Holy Ghost And they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where he is now, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the Lord has already told him that this gospel is going to go out via them once they receive the Holy Ghost. And this is a promise that they will receive this Holy Ghost they're going to receive after he departs. He mentions that in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. So again, there's there's this reference to the fact that Jesus is saying, after I depart you're going to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, he's been risen from the dead, 
but he's still walking with the disciples in chapter 1. Chapter 2, of course, he's in glory and the Holy Ghost is poured out. So, again, the Holy Ghost is going to be poured out amongst the Gentiles. But I want us to also appreciate, and this again is affirming the sovereignty of God, that this is just not some willy thing like you and I might take a bucket of water and dump it upon a bunch of people. But Jesus tells Nicodemus when he had come to him at night about the Holy Ghost that it goes like the wind. It goes wherever it listeth. The word listeth means that it has a will of its own and it goes where it wants to go. The Holy Ghost is just not like banging around things and bumping into people, but the Holy Ghost, as we know from the book of Acts, is God, and it goes exactly where God wants it to go, and it being God has its own will. Just like the Father has a will, the Son has a will, the Holy Ghost has a will too. So the Lord has said in in, uh, Joel um, that he will pour out his Spirit among all flesh, upon all flesh. So Peter's quoting from Joel here as he begins his speech earlier in Acts chapter um, 2. Now, in John chapter 14, several places, Jesus talks about giving the people another comforter. He's a comforter, but he's going to give them another comforter. He's going to send the comforter in his name. In chapter 15, 26, he repeats himself, I will send the comforter. I will send the comforter. It's coming from Jesus. He's going to send it. In chapter 16, verse 7, he tells them again, I must depart or there will be no comforter. I have to go, and then another comforter will be sent. So in verse 5 of Acts chapter 1, he reaffirms that again, that he's got to go. So it wasn't just simply him going to the cross and then being resurrected, but he's got to go up into glory, and then they will have received the Holy Ghost. So Peter is telling us here, again, this is a promise fulfilled that the Holy Ghost is being poured out. And not only is it a promise fulfilled, but it's indicative that God has accepted Jesus, and received him up into glory. So it's an affirmation of where Christ is. Back in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, the Lord says, Christ speaking, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. In verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see in here. In other words, Christ is in glory with the Father, and what you've seen is a manifestation of that fact that he's in glory with the Father, you've received the promise, and you can see what has taken place. Christ is in glory and has shed forth the Holy Ghost. He's in, on the right hand of God the Father. Now, continuing with this idea of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is set forth before us here. Look at, chap, look at verse 22. 23 and 24. I'm going to bring forth a couple of interesting truths from there so we would appreciate this. However, first I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, the Lord says very clearly about the sovereignty of God. There he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, that would be God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand 
or say unto him, What doest thou? All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hands or say unto him, What doest thou? I mean, it's, it's the un, we should understand that in the most obvious of way. He is ruling and reigning over all things. Angelic beings, beings on the earth, all principalities and powers, he's ruling over everything. And he does whatever he wants after the counsel of his own will, and nobody can stay his hand, and nobody can tell God what to do. And quite frankly, nobody can even ask God, why doest thou what you do? Now, Christ Jesus here, the object of what we're speaking about, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He has created all principalities and powers um, in the heavens and in the earth. Uh, By him and to him and through him and of him are all things. He is the Almighty God. He's described as the Almighty God in Revelation chapter 1. He was approved of God... That's in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. He's approved of God in verse 22. He was delivered by the determinate counsel of God in verse 23, delivered by the determinate counsel of God to be crucified. He was raised up from the dead by God. That's verse 24. And then in verse 33, he is exalted by God, now sitting at the right hand of the Father and as Lord and Christ, he rules and reigns, having been glorified by God in verse 36. So he's approved of God, delivered by God, raised up by God, exalted by God, and glorified by God. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, his ascension, and glorification is all of God. And it's all been laid out in Scripture. Recall when he was on the road to Emmaus, he, um, this is after the resurrection, and he speaks to a couple of his disciples. They don't know who he is. Why would they? They have not yet received the Holy Ghost. He starts asking them questions, and they're a little bit surprised that he doesn't seem to know what things have taken place recently in Jerusalem. They're speaking of the crucifixion of Christ. They're very upset by the things that have taken place, and so the Lord starts to talk to them about what things has happened. And he said, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? And to enter into his glory, all of these things have been laid out in scriptures. Why don't you people understand it? You're not, don't you understand what things you have read? Well, again, they have not received the Holy Ghost. They don't know who he is. All these things, the Lord says, were written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. They must be fulfilled. They must be fulfilled because God said they would be fulfilled. And he is sovereign and rules and reigns over all things. So, Acts chapter 2, what is Peter doing? He's doing the same thing Christ did. He's making an appeal to Scripture. He's coming. He's uh, quoting from Joel, and he's quoting from the Psalms, showing that the Psalms speak of the things not about David, which were written by David by the inspiration of God. They're not talking about David. They're speaking about Christ Jesus. So in verses 25 through 28, he says, For David speaketh concerning him, speaking concerning Christ, I, that would be Christ, foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should, that I should not be moved. 
Now, this is a psalm that we can all um, own to ourselves because we would not be moved if we truly kept the Lord in front of our um, faces. He is indeed at our right hand that we should never fail or never want of anything. However, he's telling us here that David's not talking about himself. He's talking about Christ. Verse 26, For did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Indeed, your flesh should rest in hope. Um, for different reasons, but I'm going to quote from um, Job when we finish up here that, yes, we will have new flesh. Verse 27, because thou, God, will not leave my, that would be Christ, soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, Peter's trying to help us out here. Verse 29, this is not about David, he's saying. This is about Christ, and I'm going to tell you why it's about Christ. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Well, a, I mean, that should have meant something to these people. He has not risen into glory. His uh, body did, in fact, see corruption, just, because, just as the Lord said to Adam, from, as dust thou art, dust thou shalt become. Same thing is true with David. You're made of the dust of the earth, and because of sin, because sin has corrupted your flesh, you're going to turn to dust. David is right over there in his sepulcher. So this is not about David. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, he's appealing to Scripture now. He's going to quote from the Psalms, but he's also making reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where Nathan the prophet came to him and said that the fruit of his loins, that David's son would sit on the throne forever. Uh, Therefore, uh, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So again, Peter's saying this is not about David. When David said these things, David was speaking about Christ. This Jesus, the one whom this is speaking about, hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, he lays out the witnesses that have seen the risen Christ. Um, And so he's, um, again, affirming that the psalm is about Christ. Um, Raised up from there were the witnesses. uh, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David, if you didn't understand what he was talking about, David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, speaking of Christ, the Lord said unto my Lord, God the Father said unto Christ, sit thou at my right hand. He's quoting from Psalm 110. That's what David wrote, and he's telling us that David was speaking about Christ. Now, All of these things are evidence that Christ is approved of God. It was approved by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by Christ, again affirming that God was with him and approved of him, and this God did in the midst of all of you, as ye yourselves know. So he's dropping it right at their foot. You know these things. There is no question here but that Jesus did these things. Multitudes of people followed him. He healed the sick. He did it out in the countryside. He did it in people's houses. He did it in the temple. Very public ministry. He cast out devils. 
very public ministries. The devils knew who he were. Hast thou come to torment us before the time? They knew who he was. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed thousands of people. They all saw it. They all knew it. They all partook of it. He changed water into wine. That was well known. He proved that he is the resurrection and the like and the life. He proved that he was the resurrection and the life by raising three people from the dead, not counting himself. He raised three people from the, um, from the dead, and they were all very public. You recall when he raised Jairus' daughter, he told everybody was gonna, um, what he was going to do. He said, no, she's not dead, she's asleep. And what did they do? They, quote, laughed him to scorn. Very public people laughed him to scorn when he told her he was going to bring her back to, uh, from the dead, that she, didn't, she wasn't dead, she actually slept. Well, he raises her up from the dead, and they have to think about what they have just done in terms of laughing him to scorn. That would make you re- more inclined to remember something. If you, if you behaved in that way when the Lord said he would do something, you laugh him to scorn, and then she gets up and walks. Because when you did that, what you were saying was, no, she's dead. We all know she's dead. We all know what dead people look like. Um, but the Lord raised her from the dead. On another occasion, he raised a woman's only son. This was at the city of Nain. It was a widow's son. And there was a funeral procession, and they were, it says, much people of the city were with her. They're walking out with the um, coffin um, to be buried, and he comes up and he touches it, and he tells the young man to get up. You bet that had an impression on everybody because everybody was mourning. It says, much people of the city were with her there. And then, of course, Lazarus he raised from the dead, and that was so well known and appreciated that the chief priests and the scribes um, took counsel how they would kill Lazarus and put him back in the grave. So as he's telling these people here, all you people knew about all of this that had taken place, that he was obviously approved of to God, proved, proved of by God. And you, as he drops it at their feet there, have taken, and by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. Now, the fact that he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God does not absolve anybody of their responsibility in this matter. Jesus, as part of the Godhead, took part of that counsel himself. He agreed to do it. He said of himself that he had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. No man taketh it from me. The fact that that's all true doesn't change anything. The fact that he's alive doesn't change anything. Ye men of Israel have murdered the king of glory. You are guilty of his blood. The fact that he's ruling and reigning in heaven means you really better think about what you have done and what you can do to deal with that situation. Now, the good news is, verse 37, it says, and when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That is a good thing, because we know what the Scripture says, that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. It is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. If you contrast with what takes place in Acts chapter 5, verse um, 28, when Peter had... and. Uh, Peter had been teaching in the temple and had been told not to. He's arrested there, and he has and now he's being spoken to by the leadership there. They say in verse um, 28, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, 
and here's what's important, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Their hearts are not pricked. There's no conviction in their heart about what they have done. There is over here in Acts chapter 2, and that's a very good thing. Verse 37 again, they are pricked. Now another question is, what do we do? We who are guilty of not just this particular sin, but any number of sins that we have committed against God, we all have to deal with this issue because all sin are sin against God. Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Any sin you commit against anybody is a sin against God. You have violated his commandments in one way or another. And the Lord goes beyond that. He says all unrighteousness is sin and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So what do we do? In our case, if you're a Christian, what did you do? Well, you did what it says in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Again, making reference back to what the subject's all about here. What meaneth this? That the Holy Ghost has been poured out. So, what does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus? It means to be baptized according to his will and according to his authority. It means then your sins are put away from you. Your sins are covered, if you will do that. So you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a promise that you would receive just as the Lord promised it in the book of Joel and just that the Lord promised the Holy Ghost in a number of places in the gospel. You would receive the gift, the thing that you have heard and the things that you have seen in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, you would um, receive that. So in verse 39... He kind of closes it back up and brings it back to Joel with respect to the promise of the Holy Ghost to the Jews and Gentiles alike, both near and and far. Promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now think about that. As many as the Lord our God shall call. So he's looping the sovereignty of God back over this whole thing here. And taking us back to verse 21, so we would understand this as as many as shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, as many as shall call on the name of the Lord shall have been called by God. So the sovereignty of God wraps around this, that those that call upon the Lord would have been called by God. And so people would say, well, I have chosen the Lord, but the Lord says to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And you love me because I first love you. And so the same thing would be true here. You call upon me because I have called you. And so in verse 40 it says, you shall be saved. So here we have in Scripture, God setting forth his sovereignty in his death by crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his glory, in the midst of an untoward generation. In the midst of an untoward generation, that means a crooked, a perverse, a wicked, a surly, a froward group of people. And nothing has changed today. We still live amongst these people. We see it around us every day. It's all over the world. And yet, over it all, Christ rules and reigns sitting on the right hand of God. He is not the author of confusion, and he is not the author of sin He works out all things after the counsel of his will for the good 
for the good of those that love him, to them that are the called according to his purpose. All we need to do is trust in him and rest in him. He's working all things out. We don't necessarily have to understand what things are going on and how the Lord is working it out for our good. We know that he is. We know that he is sovereign over all things. He's put it in his Bible here. You can read about it so you would not be dismayed at what things are taking place. He has overcome sin and death. He is, in fact, the resurrection and the life, as he shares with us in John chapter 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Well, I believe it, and so should you. We will one day, we should say it now indeed, what Job said in chapter 19, verse 25 and 27. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Keep in mind, this was written thousands of years, thousands of years before Christ came. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh shall I see God. He's going to see the Lord in a resurrected body, whom I shall see for myself. Mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. As the psalmist says in chapter 17 of the Psalms, verse 15, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. And so it is true for all the saints. When the Lord comes, we shall see him, for we shall be like him as he is. God has overcome sin and death. This is something in particular we celebrate on this particular day, observing the resurrection of our Lord who overcame sin and death on our behalf. Amen. Amen.